Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. And welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. Each week we pick a movie, we review that movie, we discuss that movie's place in history um, and what we took from the movie, be it emotional, cultural, anything in between. We always end the show with further reading, further recommendations based on the movie of the week. But we always start with what else we've been often watching, but generally enjoying in the, the intervening period of our last recording. So Sam, it's been about two weeks since we last spoke. What has been gracing your eyeballs or ear holes in this period? Um, nothing, really. No. <laughs> it's a fairly busy time at the moment, and any opportunity we have to watch anything, don't particularly want to think very much. Um, as I spoke about last time. So it's we're just enjoying the next series of Celebrity MasterChef without really getting too invested in it. Um, it's just something nice to stick on at night. Fair enough, fair enough. Fair enough. How about you? Um, well, I've got two that I'm kind of going to talk about, one of which is just uh, both the kind of weirdly linked. So as we'll get more into the episode, guys, we are currently almost finishing up now our mini vampire season looking at the history of vampire films um and unlike previous um genres or previous series there's been no point in this series in which i can kind of watch a child with my daughter watch a movie with my daughter they, they, they nothing nothing we've seen in the last eight weeks has been appropriate to watch it and this week isn't either but in the depths of netflix my daughter has discovered hotel transylvania which, if you haven't seen it, is a, I think it's a DreamWorks animation, um, kids animated film about Dracula and his daughter um, and her falling in love and the family dramas that and family comedies that ensure they're in. Um, and it's generally quite delightful um, for that kind of um, kids animations. Um, I'm, I'm on the record of not being the biggest fan of Pixar, um, which makes me a bit of a pariah, certainly in some film circles. Um, but I really, really did enjoy this. We've watched three of them now, and there is certainly a law of diminishing returns across the three um, movies, first being their second one being all right, but terrible, and third being Leah Cashin. Um, but I've enjoyed all three um, in their own way. Secondly, what I've been watching this week is that I think I may have talked about it last year, but it's now October, guys, um, and that makes it spooky season for me. Halloween's around the corner. And every year in October, I try and watch an entire film horror franchise. So last year, I watched all the Halloween films, all the remakes, all the offshoots, the whole kit and caboodle um, of all the ones that were available at the time. And this year, I am looking at the George A. Romero, John Russo franchise franchises of Night of the Living Dead. So there's obviously the original Night of Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Die of the Dead, Survival of the Dead of the Romero series, but also John Rosso, who co-wrote the first one. He did his own series, Return of the Living Dead, one, two, three, 
Mm. And then four and five had weird names. Um, so I'm going to watch all of those in the next month. And so I've been cracking up. I watched uh, Night of the Living Dead this week, which we have covered previously on this show. Um, it's just brilliant. It is an absolute classic for many, many good reasons. Um, I'm expecting the first couple of weeks of this to do the first few films be great and it kind of tail off towards the end of this franchise. But I shall keep you eager listeners awaited as updated as we go forward, as I'm sure you'll be on tender hooks for my opinions on these movies. So yes. So how how many are there? So there are I think currently there are six Living Dead movies. So Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead. Are they the the Romero ones? The Romero ones and Survival of the Dead. That's the original. So there are two more coming in the future, but they aren't out yet. And then John Russo, who was the co-writer of the first one, did his own spin-off, Return of the Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead 2 and 3. 4 was called Return of the Living Dead Necropolis. And then 5 is Return of the Living Dead Rave to the Grave or Rave from the Grave, one of those two. Um, so all in all, I've got 11 films that I'm going to be watching in this franchise in the next sort of now four weeks. Right. Always my mission for each Halloween is to try and watch an entire franchise in one big and see it through. Um, and keeps me focused in this spooky month of ours. But as I have mentioned earlier on, we are currently doing a mini season of vampire films. Um, we've kind of get all the way through from the 19, early 1900s, 1920s, 30s, something like that, um, with Nosferatu all the way through to where we are now. We are in 2008, so now only 11 years ago and we are looking at probably in many ways the most influential film of our franchise apart from maybe Nosferatu itself and certainly the most commercially successful film that we have covered and are going to cover Um, and that is the 2008 film Twilight. Possibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? You know what you are. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. It doesn't my world. I just want to try one thing. So, Twilight, as Rob said, 2008 film, as he as he said, is one of the most sort of culturally influential films of the 21st century. I sp- Bows, it's it's a good one for us to look at. There's a lot of tropes that we've looked at the past few weeks that we can talk about in Twilight. At its heart, it's um, a romantic fantasy film. It's based on a novel by Stephanie Meyer, um, and it involves 
a 17-year-old girl called Bella, short for Isabella Swan. And she is, um, as you find out if you, if you watch all four, all five films, three or four books, she is caught in a sort of love triangle between um, a over a hundred year old vampire and a werewolf. Um, and this is, I mean, I suppose the basis for, for lots of the romantic subplots involved in the films um, but the first film, the film that we looked at um, focuses on primarily on her relationship with Edward Cullen who's the vampire and um, it's about her developing relationship with Edward and Edward's family and it culminates in um, a showdown with another vampire and that's about it so rob what did you think i really enjoyed it <laughs> okay i know like, i have a long and potted history of this movie i haven't i have seen this film before so i will i have seen it before and i have read the first book um we have a mutual friend um called richard who we grew up with who is a big fan of these books and of these movies and maybe 10 years ago, um, somewhere around there probably, um, I remember we were at a Halloween party at his house. Um, I was at his house. I don't think Sam was there. And I was giving him a lot of stick for his love of these movies. Um, and he basically turned around to me to my face like, you haven't seen them. You can't judge them. And I, you know what? He's right. He's right. I hadn't seen it. I couldn't do it. So the following morning when everyone was still hung over lying in the heaps in the various rooms, I got up and I watched Twilight. Or the entire thing at about 7am on the first day of November one year. And I hated it. I thought it was a terrible movie. I thought not only was it awfully, like, the themes and ideas it presents were bad, I thought it was a badly made film on top of that. Um, I thought the techniques used weren't very good. And I think some of that criticism I had at the time still stands. But I suppose... Now, maybe it's like older, slightly wiser. I tapped into something here with this movie that I didn't previously, and that is the actual relationship between Bella and Edward. Like, yes, the vampirism in this is kind of silly. Like, they sparkle in sunlight. Um, and it's a little bit more kind of, I suppose, high school play vampirism rather than like serious fan, especially what we've been watching over the last seven weeks, the sort of the takes on vampirism we've dealt with. It is very much on the easily mockable end of it. Um, and the film is very, I suppose, po-faced for what it is. But that kind of, I suppose, teenage romance of the almost instant obsession with somebody and that kind of teenage-esque, empowered and powerful relationship that they portray is something I can relate to, something I can understand. I think about my teenage years and the crushes and the relationships that happened in then. Like, there is something true about that, that when you fall for somebody, you can often fall, like, on a, fall on, a, like, a, a dime for them. And it becomes this all-consuming thing, um, both from her point of view, where you kind of do anything for them, and from his point of view, where it becomes like a, like a strange addiction that you kind of want to run away from and can't. Um, and, like, I, mean, I know, I mean, ignoring a large part of the movie, especially the ending with the, um, the quote-unquote evil vampires composed of the good vampires that we like um but i really kind of got that 
token of their relationship better. I still think there are some not very good techniques being used for the film, and I think there are still some very questionable morals, certainly down the later path of the, the story. I haven't seen the other films or read any of the books, so I can't be in detail of those. He's still writing those ones. But I certainly enjoyed it a lot more this time round than I did last time. Sam, I feel you probably aren't going to join me here. Oh, come on. It's it's just such a terrible film. It's just really poorly made. Everything about it. Just... And then, like you said, the morals are really questionable. And then you start thinking about the fact she's 17, he's 104. And I suppose... My my frustrations with the film can be summed up in, in two things actually. One thing that really bugged me about and um, the aesthetic it is it was the way it looked was the um, the way the vampires move quickly, mm-hmm. and you have this sort of almost comic speeding up of them moving. So like Edward moving around the car quickly to let her out. So that annoyed me, and then. Another thing, it was kind of summed up in the, the moment when she found this, researched this book about him, about about his kind, Dampier. Um, I'm like, why did she even bother buying a book? Because she went through trouble of getting a book, went through trouble of finding out what the book was online and where it would be in a local bookstore, mm. and went there and bought the book, went back home, read three lines, found a word she didn't understand, and Googled it. Why didn't she do that to start with? Why did she bother buying a book? It was just terrible. I can't believe, but, I can't believe you're here, yeah. Sam. For you, for your history, for your literally your job, are advocating not buying books. I just, I just don't, I don't know who you are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny what you're saying. Like, it is... It is a film that, I suppose, has some certainly some plot holes. But I suppose if I'm going to take a stand here and kind of be the one to defend the movie a little bit, which I feel is kind of what I'm falling into, is that none of that matters. Because it's not about that. It's not about where she got information from. It, it, it is, at its core, about that relationship and the chemistry that Kirsten Stewart and Rob Patterson have in this movie and that is there certainly and so we are looking at this at a certain point from a place of cool detachment um we are today from a you know heterocentric male-centric view of the world in which you know masculine movies are the norm and are considered normal movies whereas female-fronted and female-fronted movies are considered somehow another, an other thing. They are separate from the mainstream. And so we come up this with certain baggage of how we are instantly, you and I, going to react to this. And we are going to have that kind of, you know, that masculine, well, no, that's not for me. And I, I, I can see what you're saying with that, but like, it's not about that. It's about that feeling of teenage remorse, about, you know... I, I, under, I understand. It just... And the first thing I read that chimes with what you were saying there, because it said it's just about the the first thing I wrote down is the opening of it is so angsty mm. and and I just okay I, I understand it's not I wrote okay it's not for me but it could be better than this I mean you've seen 
it's like the Harry Potter films. You've seen how successful films about the process mm. of going through teenage years can be done. And this this is not it for me. And I, I suppose I will I will understand what you're saying. I think from a filmic product, it certainly is lacking. There there are certainly there are directorial choices that I don't really understand. Some mm. of it's from like like the whole baseball scene. It's just like strange. It's just like I put yeah. like, like if, if we are going to apply some sort of logic to it, like if you are super fast, super strong, you would make up your own game. You wouldn't play baseball. Yeah. Um, and it does feel like I said um, I, I have read the book years and years ago. I couldn't really comment what's in the book and what's in the movie and the difference between the two. But it feels a bit like I'm trying to think of an example here. So, I'm going to talk, this is a, a, a sidebar and a segue here, but um, Clerks, the movie, is a movie that I love, um, and I've loved for a long time. I think Sam's with me, I enjoy that movie. Mm. But halfway through that yeah. movie, there's a scene in which they stop, basically, the narrative and play hockey on the roof. But that makes sense. They would play hockey. Exactly. But I remember at the time reading a review in which the reviewer was talking about how essentially there's a scene of them playing hockey on the roof because the director likes hockey and wanted a scene of them playing hockey on the roof. And because he was living the life that he was portraying in the movie, it totally worked because he would do that because he likes that. And it was it was indulgent because he liked it, but it worked because he was also, like, his experience was also the movie experience. And mm. some parts of this movie felt a bit like that, but without the authenticity. The, the, the clearly the writer or director likes baseball, and so liked a scene in which superheroes played the game they like, yeah. and so you end up with this slightly weird, slightly it didn't seem like a game or fun. It just seemed like a performative act in which they played baseball um, because someone somewhere likes baseball and likes the concept of vampires playing baseball, but without any authenticity to it or thought to it. Yeah, and and so that's why I'm referencing Clerks because I think it works in Clerks because he has the authenticity, and here it felt strange, and that's why I think so much of this movie, I'm just like, it felt like they were trying to write one thing, and they felt they had to come out tie into this narrative three act structure where you have to have a bad guy, and you know, like like we've seen films like we 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 did the whole um before Sunset trilogy in which there are no antagonists, there are no any kind of obstacles be overcome it's just a, a beautiful love story um, and those films work so so well and like part of me thinks I'm not saying these films will ever reach those heights but there's a film in here mm. of them falling in yeah. love of what do you do when someone A is stuck forever in adolescence and has repeated it a thousand times and she's like new new to the town he has become a certain thing and it, like she throws his whole world into this race. like there is a a good story in there, a really nice story. And even if you want to fold in down the line, the the, um, the triangle of is it Jacob, yes, I think it yeah. is. The, uh, the, fold that in and have that be a story. And that's a great story. And I think you know, vampirism could work there. We've seen films like Gander and Hess where you haven't got to have like a, a bad vampire to overcome. You haven't got to have that as part of the narrative. But this film, like somehow they tried to ram two things together. They want to have the, I suppose, the traditional YA story of, you know, a girl overcomes a through almost like 
a female perspective reclaiming some of the um, traditional male action hero narratives. And that's a great idea for a movie, but they've also tried to ram in this otherwise more emotionally focused, more feeling-centred romance story. And it almost, it's like the bastard child of two things. It doesn't quite work. Yeah. And if they picked one or the other, if they picked to literally tell the story of how she meets a vampire and falls in love and all the complications that come with that. And, you know, like there, there were scenes in which, like, they, you know, that the, there are other vampire kids who don't like um, her being around and like the awkward family nurse. And that then there are some moments in there that are really nice, but then you like suddenly out of nowhere, evil vampires. And then we fight them. And somehow the reason he's got the scent of Bella, it's just like, you just need to pick what you're doing. Mm. And you can, you can, I mean, with a bit, but in both those genres, you can have levity, you can have darkness. You haven't got to pick a tone in that respect. I think you can, you can mix tones. But the film needed to try and pick a genre, and it didn't seem to want to. I think that left it wanting. Yeah. A series of, two, two things I was thinking of there. One is that this film came out the year after Juno, and that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about like this sort of reclaiming mm. some of the tropes of a male-centred film and being a strong female scent And that kind of felt like it, that was almost a film it wasn't. And it's mm. a bit frustrating, that. And the other thing was, I see what you're saying about there being a good film in there. And it's interesting, mm. you, you talk about the sunset film. I, I was just thinking about, you know, that moment when they're going upstairs in the house... And they mm. they have the picture of the matriculation caps, and yeah. like he passes it off as a bit of a joke, and they don't really spend much time in it. But you get there's something really poignant in that, and that stayed with me. Nothing else in the film. I don't remember anything <laughs> else at all. Like five minutes after I finished it, I couldn't. I'm, I'm glad I've got notes because I didn't know what was going on afterwards. But that thing stayed with me. Like, that night, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that bit. There's something really poignant about that. Mm. That beautiful idea of sort of having to matriculate over and over again and being trapped in this body. Well, I think it's, it's that's, I think, where, this is where maybe I'm, I think this is where, where we're dividing, is that I look at the film and think, you know, there's some really interesting ideas. And like, the thoughts, like, his, like he doesn't sleep, really. So he hasn't got a bed in the mm. And you know, like he, so that's a really nice, interesting thought. Like you know, what he is, he's a very particular sort of character, and she isn't. And she throws his world in disarray as much as he throws hers in disarray. And then matriculation, let's not create. And like there could be more explanation of like these kids have. They're not kids; they're hundreds of years old, but they repeat high school. They keep repeating high school. And like, there's a question about why? Why are they in high school? You know, given America's pretty lax on homeschooling, why would you do that? But never mind. But there's so many interesting ideas in it, and it doesn't deliver on a lot of them. It lets a lot of them mm. down. But I think I'm kind of going, look at all the ideas. And you're like, yes, but look at all the execution. Yes, it's just... And I think that's that's where we're kind of uh, sort of dividing on it, I suppose. It just feels like a bit of a mess. There, there are times when there's a, there's a really, really good film in here screaming to get out, mm. but at other times, just not... And one of the things, I mean, some something that I notice a lot about films is the way it sounds, and the music mm. was really bad. It was just like, 
just sort of just really really obvious music cues and it just mm. felt like they got an intern to do the music and they just like sacked it off early on the Friday and, and left someone else to do it. It was I mean it's some some of the music as it's sort of sort of building to an emotional climax and then some of the visuals when like it felt remarkably dated. It wasn't just that the quick moving of the vampires; it was like the appearance of the quote-unquote bad vampire as well. You thought, well, there. I mean, two thousand eight. That was the what, the fourth Harry Potter film. Like Prisoner mm. of Azkaban still looks pretty good, and this didn't. Actually, no, it was later. It was the fifth. And, and anyway, it's that sort of sign and. It was something very dated about this. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's, I mean, there's a far, a very interesting conversation to be had around, I suppose, what this film means. You know, it, it is a female director telling a female-focused story in this genre. I, I think if you hadn't had the success of this, you wouldn't have had the, you wouldn't have had the um, Hunger Games movies and all of that. Like a lot of the sort of female-fronted action movies that we're seeing to this day. Wonder Woman, all that sort of that's coming out. I think they owe a lot of the cap to this movie. I think this film, whilst I don't, I wouldn't hold it up and say that it's a great film, I think it broke a lot of barriers in terms of proving that this sort of thing could be a financial success that the otherwise was otherwise kind of. It's that kind of idea that you know that women's studies or women's issues aren't are some sort of are a subculture are a minority, and the idea that women's films are a minority of filmmaking, and this kind of proved that actually. It's not. It's not a minority product to make a film about women for women. Mm. Yeah. Like you said, there have been sort of the success of Catherine Bigelow and people haven't really... Okay, Oscars aside, who haven't really responded to that in a big financial Mm. way. And and you're right, this, this is a huge global commercial success for something that was female directed, female written and dominated by an incredibly good, incredibly successful female actor. And the film mm. is kind of built around her because okay, yes, it's a love triangle between her and Ever and Jacob, but she's at the centre of it. And it's her it's mm. her story. So yeah, you can see what you're saying. This is this is important film for female autonomy. This is this this is like you said it kicks off sort of a decade of films where even even something like Trainwreck like mm-hmm. that sort of may, maybe that sort of film wouldn't have come along and Amy Schumer wouldn't have the success that she had with it given the the success of this film yeah I think that's you know you got to see it as that and I also think it's I mean, if you want to look at this in terms of the vampire genre as we've studied it over the um, over this sort of era, it's like we've reached a point now where vampirism becomes, I suppose, the backstory. It becomes as ephemeral as super strength or whatever. The kind of superhero style thing is that we aren't at any point in this movie dealing with the effects of vampirism. We aren't dealing with like, vampirism here. Isn't an analogy for something. It's just 
a demographic of our characters. Mm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, like it gives them certain powers and it gives them, you know, um, certain abilities and it makes the action scenes be a certain sort of thing and it has plot function. But if, you know, if you want to, if you tell this story, you know, without, you know, those kind of powers, it still could be the same kind of story. Mm. There's, there's still a very similar story in here without those kind of powers. It's just, just about two kids falling in love. And I think that's quite interesting that up until now, every film we've talked about, vampirism has been a driving focus of the film, be it someone overcoming vampirism or giving vampirism or fighting vampires. Like, vampirism was a driving focus of the film. And here it's just kind of not. It's just kind of part of it. And then they move on, really, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, like, I suppose you have the central family who are who are known as vegetarians. Mm. There's a bit of a joke about that. And you think, well, so the whole purpose of this film has been to deny that vampires do what we know vampires mm. do. And it's inherently, it's kind of like the idea of, like, especially with the evil vampires, it's somehow the idea that, I suppose, vampirism as a, as a curse is a choice. It's just, you know, they, the Cullens just choose to not be bad vampires. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, that that's fair enough. You know, vampirism certainly, as we've watched, it has been, you know, it's been a analogy for slavery, for racism, for addiction, all that kind of thing. And this idea, this the idea of both the good version of that and that the, the, you should remove the demonization of people who fall into these, these subcultures. But it does feel quite an interesting shift in in sort of culture that you know it's the humanization of the bad guy um in a way that maybe the humanization but the empathetic em, 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 empathetic empathy for the monster you know i mean i talked about earlier mm. about watching uh, hotel transylvania that is a kid's film about vampires and having seen things like Gandrin Hess and Blade, um, and that sort of thing, like the idea that you make a kid's film of this is frankly mm. terrifying. But you've got to look at the toilet and think, you know what, they made a teen rom-com of it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just that now, isn't it? I see I see what you're saying. It's, I find it difficult to get around what this film is, some of the execution, like you said, but there, there is... There are certain things to be enjoyed in this film, and one of those, like you said, is, is the fact that it's a vampire film about not being a vampire, mm. or about the difficulties of being a vampire. And that, I can come back to that, the the sort of the turmoil, the angst in Edward Cullen, and and the idea of all those matriculation caps and what it is like for him to have to be 17 400 years and I mean that that's it, it is so like you say it's it's ridiculous because why would they bother not not just homeschooling mm. but there's something there's something really evocative about that time in life and that that means there have been so many successful high school films and this is it feels like this is playing off that as well. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that's where, I mean, as we're talking about this, sort of that heightened emotion sense, I mean, high school is certainly that period. Certainly the teenage emotions are running wild. It is that place for really intense, really 
take leave of your senses, throw away everything you know, follow a guy into the woods kind of romance. I'm trying to avoid the word love because I think it's a very different thing. I think you and I obviously at the other end of both being married with kids. I think our teenage relationships are very different to what we have now, I hope. Um, and mm. whilst it's portrayed as love in this, it's more of a infatuation. It's more of a intense burning desire, be it platonic, be it sexual or romantic. It's it, that high school is the place for that. And that's why I mean, if you, if they're both 30 and working in an office, it would be just weird Whereas mm. the, the idea of this heightened, you know, it is a running thing through the movie in sort of the human side of who's going with who to prom, who's asking who, and all of that, like that kind of thing where both who's dating who dominates everything. Um, yeah. I, I can certainly look, look, about, look at our teenage years, and it was a lot about what happened at the party at the weekend, who was talking to who, who was dating. Like, that was the, the news of the day was all of that. And so if you're making this kind of movie, high school is the place to put it. Yeah. Before we move on, and I have sort of been turned a little bit to these things of this film. I just want to read you out some of the things I've written because it reads like uh, someone loved tweeting a traumatic experience. Um, this is so cringy. Oh God, is this a joke? Has she never seen a ketchup bottle before? Just terrible. Why not? Question mark, question mark. Is this a pastiche? Why does he want to say that? Why doesn't she care he's a killer? Is there no sunshine in this town at all? How is the trip outside related to dancing? And that was about halfway through the film. I think I just stopped then. <laughs> it's like, no, I can't do this anymore. So, yeah, there's some some success for you there. But there's a, a lot, a lot that could be improved on from mm, my perspective. So, Rob, do you have any um, non-Twilight recommendations? I do, I do. Now, a lot of the hate of this movie and a lot of the obsession with this movie was poured on the two main characters, uh, Kirsten Stewart and Rob Patton. They were in a relationship outside of the movie as well. Um, so there was a lot of focus on them, and they took it quite a lot of pressure. And I think it's very interesting that neither of them have really strayed back into mainstream franchise filmmaking since. That apparently Robert Pattinson is taking his toes into being a, a Batman, possibly in the future. But they both have gone, gone off and done a bunch of weird films. They've taken the money and the credos they've got from doing Twilight and kind of ploughed it into making some very odd things. So I'm going to recommend a movie from both of them, basically. Things they've done over the years that I really like. They are wildly different films, but uh, I enjoy both of them. So first up, from Kirsten Stewart, there's a movie called American Ultra from about four years ago, which essentially is the Manchurian candidate if the candidate was a dropout stoner um, living in West Virginia. Played by Dizzy Eisenberg, um, Kirsten Stewart plays his girlfriend. Uh, they are a pair of stoner dropouts. Um, and the film, which is, isn't a spoiler, because um, it's revealed in all the trailers very early on, it reveals that he is actually a sleeper agent for the government and is activated and has to deal with all of that as he's trying to be shut down. Um, it's silly and fun. It's them being kind of awkward and weird and they're kind of, but also plowing that into quite a very impressive action movie. Um, I know I've decried Twilight as being kind of two genres fused together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
in American Archer, I find that it really does work. And whilst I'm not the biggest Eisenberg fan, I did dig him in this. My second one is a period movie from actually the same year, weirdly, 2015, um, set in, two, in 1919. Um, it is The Childhood of a Leader, which is basically the tale of the childhood of a young boy um, and the uh, not adventures, the slow destruction of his soul and his morals and the sort of the culmination of him becoming a dictator in a totalitarian state. Um, Robert Patton picks pops up uh, early on as a friend of his father's and mother's of the child. Um, it's a little film, but he very much lent his name to it to try and uh, give it a bit of uh, oomph in terms of uh, budget and credos. It's not a fun film, you'd say, but it's a very interesting film, a very well-made film, and uh, I uh, I dig it. It didn't do a lot of of business, and it wasn't well known, um, but. Uh, I, I would certainly recommend checking it out if it's something that you're in any way interested in. Or what about you, Sam? Two things I've got this week. The some of the sort of shaky forest set camera work and these sort of bestial movements um, just made me long for the Blair Witch Project, which has not dated at all, even though it's nearly a decade old in this film. Um, and I remember seeing it in the cinema, and was I old enough? Yeah, mm-hmm, it was 15, yeah. isn't it? It was an 18. Yeah, 15. Okay, I was old enough. It was legal. Um, but it just scared the living daylights out of me. Um, so that's my recommendation this week. Blowick for it. Weirdly, I think you and I saw it together. I believe um, so, yeah. At Sh- Showcase Cinema over in uh, Winnersh. Um, and I remember from where we were, I had to walk home through a wooded path. And like, I remember thinking, I've seen a lot of horror films. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, and then just utterly cacking my pants and to walk through this like slightly wooded <laughs> path. Yeah. Uh, great. Thanks me. Um, and my second one is another Robert Pattinson recognition. This is not one I've seen um, because it's coming out later this year. It's one that I look forward to seeing and one I may get around to seeing about five years' time. Um, it's adaptation of a Jane Kutsi novel called Waiting for the Barbarians, which is about um, a colonel and a magistrate in um, an unspecified empire outpost. The suggestion is that Kutsi's South African, this is to do with um, experiences of apartheid in South Africa in the 1980s, but it's never really specified. Um, and it's about the interactions of the magistrate with um, one of the quote-unquote mm. natives. And it's very good. It's a very, very well-written book. And I'm looking forward to seeing what is done with that. Um, and it's got Mark Rylance in one of the lead roles, and it's got uh, Robert Pattinson as one of the supporting characters, so that should be good. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Fair enough. I shall uh, add it to my epic thought list. So, guys, we are finishing out next episode with our final episode on the vampire genre. We are moving into this 
decade. So we are jumping forward to 2014 and we are looking at the New Zealand mockumentary horror comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this. As long as we've been planning this genre, I've been hoping we could get around to covering this one. So you can find that wherever you find movies and we will be back in two weeks time to cover that. Till then, you can find both of us online at Pressy Podcast. You can find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>